Most students in most modern-day cultures have a requirement to learn two foreign languages. The first is a language spoken orally by people a border or ocean or half a world away. Call that a foreign tongue. The second is a language universally required of all students. This foreign language has its own grammar, highly logical at that, its own rules and translations and axioms. Call that language math. In 2014, mathematician Jordan Ellenberg wrote a book, not for other mathematicians, but for all of us, for you and me, the numerate, the innumerate, the low GPA folk, the high GPA folk, the book lovers, the math phobes. In How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking, Ellenberg unlocks the doors of mathematical concepts and invites us all into a world where math is not just numbers and equations, but a way of thinking a philosophy that underpins every aspect of our lives. This week on Rule Breaker Investing, come with us then into the mysterious world of mathematics. Math's universal language underlies our daily decisions, our perceptions of the world, even our understanding of beauty and art. You can certainly try to ignore the math, if you like, generally to your detriment, or you can lean in, switch on, you can stop saying, I'm bad at math, and start to pay at least a little more attention. Our world increasingly relies on data and logic. This should not sound like a threat. After this week's conversation, I sure hope it won't. And anyway, don't you, this week anyway, not want to be wrong? Only on Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Authors in August for a sixth consecutive year continues. How many great authors are we getting to connect with once again this year? So far, Neil King and American Ramble kicking off this month. Sonny Vanderbeck and Selling Without Selling Out last week. And now this week, perhaps the boldest titular promise of all. Is this a promise? How not to be wrong. Mathematician Jordan Ellenberg is in the house this week. Before we get started, let me mention again that next week, author Amor Tolls makes a return visit to Rule Breaker Investing. This time, we're talking through his latest novel, The Lincoln Highway. It's 576 pages of goodness to greatness. I gave you a head start last week, dear reader, and August is maybe the best month to do lots of reading, or maybe you read it when it came out two years ago. Anyway, next week, we get to check back in with Amor Tolls. Man, August has become one of my favorite months. Jordan Ellenberg grew up in Potomac, Maryland, the child of two statisticians. Child prodigy is not an overblown statement to describe his intellect as he competed in and won international math Olympiads and their ilk at precocious ages. As an adult, Jordan went into, yeah, math and teaches today at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, where he focuses not just on his expertise, arithmetic geometry, but writing. That's right. He's teaching writing this fall as well. In fact, speaking of writing, in 2014, as I mentioned at the top, Jordan wrote a bestseller entitled How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. Finally, in 2023, I picked up a copy nine years later, read it, loved it, and I'm happy and honored to have Jordan Ellenberg join us this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Jordan, let's start our conversation about math, talking about a place where many first learn it, schools. 
Uh, do U.S. schools teach math properly? And if you could wave your magic wand, bippity boppity boo, what would you change? Do, do I have to make that exact sound? Well, okay, well, we can discuss that. that was, um, okay, this is a huge question. Uh, we really sort of jumped right into the cold, deep part of the water. Okay. You betcha. Um, so here's one thing I've learned. I've been teaching math a long time. And let me let me caveat everything I say with the fact that um, I teach college. I don't teach in K-12 schools. I have two kids who are uh, going through that K-12 process. So I see schools as a parent. Um, but not as a teacher. So there's a lot I don't know about what it's like to have like a room full of eighth graders in front of you just with one. It seems a little terrifying to have 30, but, um, <laughs> here, but here's what I've learned. I mean, I have been teaching math for a couple of decades and what I'd say I've learned is that there's no one right way to do it. I think I spent a lot of time at the beginning of my career being like, I'm going to figure out the exact right way to present this material so that everybody likes it and everybody gets it. And the truth is, I, I just I think kids are pretty different from each other. And so I think there's no one approach that's going to be right for everyone. I do think there's some wrong ways, by the way. But I think as a teacher over the years, I've learned to take a kind of grab bag approach where like I adopt a bunch of different styles. And hopefully everybody in the class has those moments where they're like, Oh, today Ellen Burke nailed it. I don't know what the hell he was doing <laughs> the last three weeks when he was doing it some stupid way, but at least he finally said something, so I get it. But for some other students, it's going to be like a different day. I mean, yeah, hopefully I each student has more than one day that they like. But you see, you see the point that I think um, as, as a teacher, I've kind of tried to learn not to be doctrinaire and not to be like, this is the right way to do it, and just rather be like, who's in front of me? What's working? Look at their eyes while I'm talking and is there something in there right now? And if there's not, maybe I'm actually just going to like stop this class in the middle and veer off course from what I was going to do. I mean, um, that said, that's not that useful, right? If you're interested in like educational policy. Um, yeah. So if you want to know what would I do if I could wave my magic, my magic wand, I'm going to come back to that boop, boop, be do question. Um, you know, one thing I'd say, and I think everybody who teaches college would say that we see students come in not fully having mastered algebraic skills. If you want to know what we see students lacking when they come into college, it's algebra. It's not calculus. It's not like multivariable advanced calculus. It's it's algebra, very basic stuff. Um, and you can kind of make it through the more advanced courses if your algebra skills are weak, but make it through in a kind of scrambling way. And at some point that sort of runs out if, if, um, for kids who are going to consider going on, uh, in engineering or any technical subject like that. So I think, why do we have trouble teaching algebra and graduating students with algebraic skills? The reason is very simple. It's because algebra is actually quite hard. Mm. It's a massive conceptual leap over what we've done before in the classroom. And so here's what I would say. I think we have a way of thinking about the way classes work in school where either you pass and you move on to the next course or you flunk and you have to take it again. And if you flunk, that's bad, man. Like that's embarrassing. And people are like, oh my God, that kid was held back. Like that kid. Yeah. I, I would love, I don't know how to get here, but I would love a world in which it's more normalized to take classes twice. I think I think we would be better off if more kids took algebra twice because that is like 
there are going to be some kids who can just like latch onto it the first time because of how it's taught or like a nice rapport between them and the teacher. But we are definitely passing lots of kids out of algebra who kind of know it, but not really. And then that kind of kneecaps you later. Mm. At one point, page 104, to be precise in How Not to Be Wrong, Jordan, you briefly used the phrase math train, as in there are two moments in the course of education where a lot of kids fall off the math train. You mentioned the first is fractions, but math is kind of a train people can fall off. Is it because it seems like getting bad grades snowballs because of the way math builds up from one lesson to the next? So I kind of get you on the idea of taking algebra twice. In fact, you mentioned that there are two moments in the course of education in your book where people fall off the train. The second is, of course, that dangerous twist in the track, as you, in your words, algebra. Yeah, uh, yeah the, and the other one is fractions, right? Besides algebra. That's the first one. Fractions are the first, exactly. Fractions are the first and algebra is the second. Absolutely. It's funny because I think exactly what I'm saying is, man, it would be great if it were less like a train where Man, if you sort of need to get off the train to pee or something, right? You're sort of if you're off, you're off. The train's gone. Yeah, if you're behind it. Um, and I wish it could be less like that. And it's funny that I use that metaphor in the book, probably without even thinking about it. We all do, sort of buying into this idea that that's yeah how it should be. When you talk about algebra being hard to teach because it's hard, or hard to learn because it's hard, one of the things we've learned uh, from a Motley Fool standpoint. We often bemoan that financial literacy isn't better taught in schools. And I see you nodding your head. And, you know, we, we want our kids to leave school, not just learning algebra, perhaps, but understanding compounding returns. And they may know the math to do it, but they don't necessarily have the right language or concepts that they can pull in and make use of in their practical day-to-day -day life. What we've discovered as a consequence of looking harder at this is the number one reason we think that financial literacy is not more prevalent in our schools is because the teachers themselves don't feel literate or confident enough to teach it. Do you think that's also happening with algebra or not? And by the way, we don't have to keep going down this way. We're not sitting in judgment of U.S. math education, but I'm curious your viewpoint. Well, maybe if we paid teachers more, they would have more money to save and they would have more experience with investment that they could use to give hands-on advice to their students. There right? you go. There you go. Um, okay, let me hit your question with a question before we go on. Do you think... The basics of financial literacy are hard. In other words, do you think students graduate not getting it because it's conceptually difficult, which is what I would say about algebra or calculus or even fractions? Or would you say we're just not bothering to teach it? Love the question. And I would say emphatically, the concepts are not difficult. At least if I can wrap my mind around them. I was really good in math up to about calculating the speed of change in curves and motion. And I think I kind of got algebra, but once we hit calculus, I was the AB track, not the BC. But I, I, I still can, I'm a fast study calculating baseball on base plus slugging percentages and stratomatic baseball and dice games and numbers and statistics I've always really loved. And that's really all I think you need to know to understand most of finance. And can I say, we're going to come back to this finance, algebra, I have a metaphor to do. But before we do that, I just want to say, can you believe, because it sounds like you grew up as a baseball stats nerd like me, can you believe we live in a world where you go to the baseball game and on the giant scoreboard, they're showing the OPS and the WHIP? I cannot believe it. These things we thought were only for the nerds. These will never catch on with like general baseball fans. And now it's on the diamond vision. Incredible.
And I totally have said the same to my baseball-loving friends, my Sabermetric friends, my Bill James back-in-the-day-loving friends. And I'm one of those people, too. And I, I can't believe it. And I kind of love it. I don't think Bill James ever thought he would become mainstream. I agree. No way. He thought he was writing like weird, nerdy books for nerds. That's right. And he was told that he never played the game. And so uh, what he said wasn't relevant to, uh, well, until, I guess, Billy Bean started listening in Oakland. And now everybody has um, all the numbers that they need, maybe too many numbers in some cases. Maybe we'll come back to that. But I, I'm glad I'm ta- talking, not surprised that I'm talking to a fellow baseball fan. I, I am a few years older than you. We've established this before we came on line <laughs> together, but but not that many. So Jordan, you and I both pretty much grew up in an era where the calculator was invented and made its way into schools a bit tamer than when smartphones showed up for our kids. But all of a sudden, there we were in the 1970s. Many of us were faced with the question as to whether long division was necessary. Now, I'm glad I learned it, but now we have, and you know this question's got to come at some point in this interview, now we have AI, artificial intelligence, already here slash on its way. Jordan, are there aspects of math that you think truly no longer need to be learned as a consequence of an age where machines can do it bigger, faster, more accurately? And by the way, it seems like they can code for us too. Oh yeah, I use it for that. So I know this very well. And boy, again, you're opening up like a big depot from which we could like head off in a lot of different directions. But um, first of all, the intersection with, of AI with mathematics is a fascinating area and it's a complete, I mean, we just don't know how it's going to look. And it's a very exciting thing to think about. You know, most of my research life, I'm, I'm a number theorist, which means I work in the most classical precincts of mathematics and think about, you know, thousand year old questions. And it's pretty exciting to spend some time thinking about questions that literally could not have been asked 12 months ago. That's awesome. pretty far into my usual way of working in research. So it's incredible. Um, if people are listening, I would definitely recommend we had a great uh, workshop at the National Academy of Sciences about uh, artificial intelligence to assist mathematical reasoning. And we had like a lot of research mathematicians and industry people just talking about how is are these developments going to change mathematical practice. And I would definitely recommend checking out some of the talks there if you're interested in this nexus. Um, but in terms of education, right, in terms of what happens in the classroom, I mean, I tend to not be a catastrophist about this kind of stuff, so you'll definitely find people who disagree with me about this. But, um, you know, for us in the math department, you know, we're in a moment where my colleagues who make who write essay assignments, right, who teach in the English department or history or philosophy, there's a lot of freak out going on, right? Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to assess our students when they can produce, I would not say good, but passable examples of English writing more or less on a given theme, right? They're like, what are we going to do in a world where students can press a button on a website and produce a not great but adequate solution to a homework assignment? And in the math department, we're just like, well, welcome to where we've lived for the last like 15 years, right? Because this is not new for us. What we teach in calculus or in high school math or whatever, but especially calculus, which is what I see in, in college, Absolutely 100% any student can go on innumerable websites and generate fully worked out solutions to just mm. about any question we ask in the, on a homework in that class in an instant. Um, I hope uh, if college students are listening to this, don't, actually, don't do that. If there's one college student who doesn't already know that fact, who's listening to this, <laughs> I'm sorry I spilled the beans. But I think they all do. Um, so we're already at that equilibrium, right? And I think what we have found 
Um, and maybe I'm going to throw my own son under the bus to say I slightly know this from like watching him do his calculus homework. Like they do. Okay, I think there are some who just don't do their homework, right? I mean, who are, like, really tricked out of the class. But by and large, I think the dominant way that kids use these devices um, is to try to do the problem and then check their work after the fact. Like, they use it as an aid and as a boost, not as a thing to do their homework for Mm -hmm. them. And so my non-catastrophist view on this is that just as with calculators and just as with every single other cognitive tool we've developed uh from advances in computer science um it's going to be something we use to help us do our work not something we use to do our work instead of us most of the time and for most people so we'll see how it plays out right because we're at the very beginning um but certainly in terms of math at this moment we're not at a place where it looks like mathematical reasoning is going to be replaced on the contrary i think there's lots of exciting ways in which we can hope the mathematical reasoning is going to be boosted. And actually, your example of coding is a great example of that because I definitely use these tools routinely now because I'm just going to like put this out there. I hope it doesn't diminish my status. I'm a pretty crappy programmer. I can do it. I know Python and I need to do it because I like run experiments all the time for my research. Um, but my life as a Python coder is definitely, oh my God, what's the syntax for that? Oh my God, what's the command for that? I don't remember. Is this a bracket or is a parentheses? You know what I mean? I don't do it every day. And so I'm not, I don't really have it in my fingers. Um, So these tools are tremendously useful for that. Like I don't use it to write an entire program for me. I'm like, okay, there's something and it's like three lines of Python, what three lines of Python? And then I like generate it and I paste it in. But I'm still in the driver's seat. Um, I'm using it to eliminate the tedious part of the job. And that's what computational tools have already always done, right? Yeah. Mechanize the more tedious part of the job. I, I have a, when I talk about this stuff with AI and math, there's like a little chart I like to make where like on every task, right? We go from like incompetent to mastery. You know, when there's dots on the like incompetent, sub-mediocre, mediocre, <laughs> good, master. And then I draw a little line from sub-mediocre to mediocre. That's AI. That's where AI is. I, I think there's Got very it. few domains in which it actually is good at things, right? It doesn't produce a good essay. But if you were like, let's say, uh, if English is your second language, it will definitely sort of take an essay that's kind of hard to read because there are certain idioms you don't know or certain pieces of syntax that you haven't mastered and clean that up and bring it from sub-mediocre to me- mediocre. And like that somehow, if you're like an AI triumphalist, it's like, that doesn't sound very exciting going from sub-mediocre to mediocre. I would say the exact opposite because like all of us are sub-mediocre at almost everything. Well right? said. We're good at the things we're good at. But like taking people from sub-mediocre to mediocre in like lots of domains at the same time at scale, that is a massive boost. It is incredible. And I would also like just to add that so many times that boost takes one second, less than a second. Right. You hit the return key and bam. I mean, you've got like a pretty good answer, uh, and it took no time at all. So the speed is crazy. I want to I want to trademark the phrase artificial mediocrity. I think artificial mediocrity is worth <laughs> trillions of dollars. <laughs> well, I'm fascinated by what you said about five minutes ago, which is that you're now able to articulate. Mathematicians are now able to articulate questions that they wouldn't have even known how to phrase or ask twelve months ago. So my my. First thought is, is this the most fun time to be alive as a mathematician in human history? I would have to believe 
it is, and you're getting to live that. But second, Jordan, and I may regret asking you this, but could you give an example of a question that you're now able to ask that we couldn't have asked before? I realize it's going to be very high math and or so abstract that me and probably most of my listeners, although we're pretty unsub-mediocre, some of us, some of them will grasp it. But I would love to hear you articulate something like a question that you couldn't have asked a couple of years ago. Well, okay. I'll answer both those questions. One, is it the most fun time to be a mathematician in human history, or at least in my lifetime as a mathematician? Um, Going to be honest with you, it's all fun. There's all, I mean, mathematics just constantly gets bigger and faster and better. And there is, I, I would say certainly my lifetime has been a pretty amazing time to be a mathematician, and I don't see that changing. So I think this is an interesting moment because exciting stuff that happens is a little more le legible to people outside mathematics than sort of these more technical developments that are pretty groundbreaking. Like if I say like, oh, imagine being present in Paris in the 60s when Grotendieck was developing the theory of schemes, you'd just be like, okay, why <laughs> should I care about that? I guess there was good baguettes or something. Okay, so to me, I'm like, oh man, that would be like, you know, seeing the Beatles yeah. in the Cavern Club or something. But like, that's a little bit harder to sort of, so, so, but you asked, and so, you asked what kind of questions. Um, actually, that is a pretty answerable question because the fundamental, interesting scientific fact about the current wave of artificial intelligence, and I don't just mean like large language models, although those are very big right now. I mean, the whole world of like deep learning, reinforcement learning, like all these mechanisms is that, I'm just gonna be honest with you, we don't really know why they work. In some sense, they work much better than they have any right to. And that's like a vast theoretical question. And that question is a math question, right? Because it's mathematical algorithms that are driving all these things. Um, we have no theoretical guarantees, by the way. There's not a single artificial intelligence algorithm that we can prove that it works. And there's hot debate over whether it's even possible or makes sense to talk about proving that an artificial intelligence algorithm works. Um, but even questions like, can we give a definition of learning? Can we give a definition of what it means for a machine to be able to generalize from previous uh, observations it's made? Um, it's basically, it's an engineering achievement, which doesn't yet have a theory. Like, like imagine, okay, that is amazing. and I'm worried that anybody who knows anything about engineering or artificial intelligence is maybe going to like start projectile vomiting right now, but let's try it. I mean, like, imagine if sort of people figured out how to build a steam engine, but there was like no physics, like no theory of pressure. Like, no, they were just like, wow, you sort of light the coal on fire and it makes steam. And like, for some reason, this train just like <laughs> goes to London. We don't know why. Like, it's kind of like that, uh, right? That is awesome. I love <laughs> That's a great metaphor. Um, and if that were the case, it would be an exciting time to be a physicist, right? You'd be like, we got to figure this out. What the hell? What the hell's driving the train? All we did was set some coal on fire. I had a conversation on this podcast um, in July with my friend Mahan Tavakoli, who was rocking um, some of the work of A.J. Agarwal in Canada and basically said that the real revolution here, I mean, there's a lot of them. And you're pointing out some of them are abstract and we, we're still trying to figure out what the revolution is. But at least one of the early conclusions that they have is that the cost of prediction of what will come next is being dramatically reduced in a way that is systemic 
for our society. And so, obviously, large language models are predicting what's going to come next, the one or the zero, the keys to the, the code, the keys to letters and numbers and thoughts. But So that is predictive, but then it can lead to weather and, I don't know, markets and all kinds of possibilities. Baseball. But here's, but here's the thing, David. Like, th- this is a perfect example of, I think, on the one hand, that's true. On the other hand, as a theoretician, you come to this and they say, well, boy, there's prediction covers a lot of different things. Yeah, there's a lot of different phenomena. It's too, you it's might too big to So, for instance, I'll, I'll put my cards down. If you tell me, hey, is, is all this new stuff going to allow us to predict what the weather's going to be like three weeks from today instead of one week from today? I highly doubt it. <laughs> I think there's like structural physical reasons why that problem is not going to be touched by these yep. methods. Um, yep. Is it going to be able to tell me what the stock market is going to be a month from now? Highly I'm highly it. skeptical. I highly doubt it. Don't yep. believe that's true. Now, you know, the world may prove me wrong. But what I'm saying is there's prediction and there's prediction. And I think rather than sort of asking, are these machines intelligent or can they predict? We should be asking, what can they predict and what can't they? What cognitive tasks can they do and what can't they? And there's going to be ample examples of both. Well, it does seem as if large language models do a pretty good job at predicting what might come next that would be helpful or instructive to take enough of us from sub-mediocre to mediocre. And that seems like an amazing gain in just, for a lot of us, I know the work's been happening for decades, but for a lot of us, this popped up somewhere around last fall, even on the early side. And most Americans have not even tried ChatGPT yet. And that's America, let alone the rest of the world. Actually, I have no idea. Do we know what kind of penetration it's had? Well, as of a couple months ago, the figures that I was hearing quoted, and I I trumpeted them, so I'm assuming, I hope I had it not totally wrong, uh, 86% of us had not tried or signed on or tried a large language model yet. I mean, it's amazing that one in seven of us actually have. Right. So it's still like OPS, right? It's still not like broken out. Yeah, it is. On-base plus slugging. So, um, so occasionally on this podcast, Jordan, by the way, we're just having fun. Yes, this is a book interview, but really we're just all over the map, and that is very rule-breakery. That's what I do try to bring to listeners every week. Thank you so much for indulging us. Occasionally in interviews on this podcast, when I feel like I'm reading something fun or crazy on my guest's Wikipedia page, I like to conduct a Wikipedia fact check. So, Jordan, did you in fact teach yourself how to read at the age of two Watching Sesame Street, and assuming that's accurate, could you tell a little more of that story? Well, okay, so that's a hard one to fact check because I obviously have no memory of being that young. That's what my parents say. They insist they did not write that into Wikipedia. I did not know who did. (laughs) I do realize, as genius as you were at the age of two, you still don't have memories of that. Yeah, no, I don't remember. But I mean, I do. Look, I mean, this isn't always an interesting thing to talk about because um, there are a lot of different stories of working mathematicians, like a lot of ways into this profession. Um, I think there's a stereotype that mathematics is something that's done that you're kind of hit with the math stick at birth or shortly after. And like the kids who are maybe going to do math, like know that when they're small children. Um, Working in a math department and working around mathematicians all my life, I can tell you that that is anything but the case. I constantly, in fact, Mm. it was just, I had a great student just last year who was like an engineer and suddenly sort of his senior year of college was like, I just realized I really don't care about my engineering classes and only care about my math classes. And I think that's what I want to do. You know, he certainly did not think of himself as like a math guy. He thought of it as 
a tool to do what he was planning to do. So, right. I mean, we have, and we have people who get great PhDs who come in from some of them were like, I can think of people who were like video game designers, people who were like high school teachers, like people sort of come to it all over. And there is this kind of stereotype that, no, it's a thing that you're like born into that you do from when you're a small child. So that's all preface to saying that while that's the stereotype and it's not the universal story, it was my story. So that's why I sort of, so, so yeah. I, I always have to preface it with that. So for me, yeah, I was always like very, very into math from the time I was a small child. And I do remember that. And it seems like you entered a number of competitions. I don't know if you, you did it out of an internal motivation or you had amazing helicopter parents who were themselves statisticians, I think, going, we got to push this guy. He's, he can win it all globally, which it seems that as if at different points in your youth and no doubt as an adult as well, you are the opposite of submediocre when we talk about competitions with other humans figuring out the answers. Well, again, it's something. So, first of all, I should say, like, we we don't really. My parents were not like dance mom of math competitions, and I'm not. I'm not even sure there like is that concept. <laughs> for as far as I know, you know, maybe maybe more nowadays, but like, I don't think of it as an era. I think like the kids who are like doing these competitions are like pretty self motivated. Now, yeah, I, I went through a long period of being kind of ambivalent about that whole world of doing high school math competitions, which again, if your listeners like don't know about this, there's like, there's like an entire circuit, right? Like, um, count, you know, counties and school districts have leagues and there's like national contests and like this and that. Um, because in many ways, what you train yourself up to do to win those contests is very different from actual math, mm. right? In actual research math, the stuff that I do for a living and that, you know, I draw so much meaning from Never once has anybody said, you got to do this problem in three hours. Like that doesn't exist in real math. Like my time scale is like, ooh, this seems important. I'm really going to get to work on it and hope to do it in like three months or maybe if it's hard, a year. You know what I mean? That's the time scale. So these kind of like timed contests that rely Artificial. more on cleverness than on depth. Um, on the one hand, I'm like, boy, that gives kids sort of a false impression of what math actually is. On the other hand, as a grown up, I've come to see, you know what? Anything that brings kids into the subject is probably good. Remember how I said at the beginning, like kids are just different from each other. They have different yeah. needs. So there's some kids who are going to get excited about being on the math team and that's going to bring them into contact with like really deep, exciting ideas and they're going to get excited about. It. There's other kids who are going to see a movie like Hidden Figures or A Beautiful Mind. I mean, A Beautiful Mind is a terrible movie. Sorry, Academy Awards jury. I mean, it's an awful, awful movie. The book is great, by the way. Uh, and, and I haven't read the book, but um, why is the movie terrible? Just for the fun of it. Um, like, why did they choose to make a terrible movie? Or like, what's my take why, on, why, on what makes why it terrible? Why do you come down calling the best picture, I think, wasn't it? I think it did win the best terrible. picture. Terrible. And, and I love that you do, by the way, as a contrarian, as a fellow fool. I'm loving this, but but what what is terrible about A Beautiful Mind, the movie? I mean, let me think. let me think back because I saw it once i rolled my eyes and walked out and like never really thought about it again but like <laughs> but did you I, watch the whole thing or did you actually walk out i, I watched i watched the whole thing I, I succumbed to the sunk cost fallacy is that what economics call it i paid my money for the ticket <laughs> you did that is that is behavior no, and, like, you know, russell crowe is a great actor like i don't want to and like um uh, you know, I felt like, you know, I, I was a postdoc in Princeton. I mean, Nash was around. So I felt like, OK, like this guy sort of captured the mannerisms. He did a good job as an actor. But the movie was like fundamentally very corny and like 
everything, any math condition, we just like, I don't know how to put it. Um, I feel like the movie succumbed in the way that the book definitely did not to the idea that mathematical achievement and insanity are very close together. Mm. They are not, in fact, very close together. They are very far apart. Thinking about mathematics is a kind of extreme sanity. It's, it's funny because G.K. Chesterton said the same thing about poets. And as a writer himself, he took umbrage, this notion that most of the poets are half mad and they're all about to die young and go crazy. And he said, you know, actually, in a fun essay, I don't know if you've come across this one, he said, you know who's crazy? It's not the poets. It's the chess players because they think the world exists in an eight by eight grid and everything is coming and they're the crazy ones. Anyway, I don't think necessarily any of these people are crazy. Generally, I admire poets and chess players, but it is funny hearing from somebody who is that steeped in mathematics and a love of math to, to hear you criticize it rightly. I hear you there that, that, that the idea that you're just a half step away from craziness because you have a beautiful mind. But the overall point I'm making is that even though I thought that movie sucked, the number of math majors at Princeton literally tripled in a year the year it came out. So at some point, you just got to like accept the cringe factor (laughs) and be like, hey, if it tells – look, I mean I always say like sometimes I like go on TV or something and I do an appearance and people are like, okay, that was like very content-free. Like you were on for 30 seconds. What good does it do? I'm like most people literally don't know there's such a thing as a mathematician who is alive and is not like a dead individual in a robe from Greece or something like that. So I think just the mere fact that that is a job you can have and that is a profession that you can do, broadcasting that at scale, to me, is like really important for bringing people in contact with what we do. Great point. And I can relate having done a lot of TV spots in my uh, past and often with the gesture cap on. And similarly, we would get like one line about how people sell stocks too frequently. They should just find great companies and hold them. 30 seconds, we're done. Morning TV, CNBC, whatever it is. And yet, you know, we had the full cap on and we're talking about things that everybody can be part of. The stock market, be a part owner of Chipotle or Nike and get wealthy over time by being patient. So sure, it was fluffy. It was 30 seconds. And yet, yeah. And one thing I've had to like, you know, I talk to people about this a lot in my profession about, you know, doing math for the public and like publicizing math is that, you know, I'll write something and somebody will say like, but you know, like that article's written before, or even like you've written that article before, like, and it's like, yeah, but not everybody read it the first time I wrote it. And like, I'm going to say the same thing again and still not everybody's going to hear it. Like, I mean, it would be silly as saying, why should I teach calculus this year? I taught it last year. Yeah. To different people. So the whole totally point of why we spent thousands of years building up an apparatus of math, or for that matter, of financial literacy, is that people don't know it until you tell them, and you got to say the same thing again and again. You have your true things that you know, and they are worth repeating. Jordan, your book is peppered with great lines and concepts that can and should be of interest to general readers. That's what we're talking about, general listeners. This is a this is an investing and business podcast, and we're talking some about math, but in a way. That, as you write, that doesn't seem to many of us anyway, math-y. So here's an example. I'm going to quote you, but I would just enjoy hearing you riff a bit more on this outside of just this line from your book. And I quote, a basic rule of mathematical life, if the universe hands you a hard problem, try to solve an easier one instead, 
and hope the simple version is close enough to the original problem that the universe doesn't object, end quote. Absolutely. And that is like sort of something that I've like learned the hard way over my career as a mathematician. Um, the most problems, the actual problem you're trying to solve is quite hard. And I would say that certainly applies when thinking about the economy. I mean, good Lord, right? Nobody can think about finance or the economy without oversimplifying. And sometimes... Um, we need fractals. Microeconomics exists underneath macroeconomics. Right. But the point is, if every time you try to think about something macroeconomical, and please stop me if I use these words incorrectly because I'm you're killing my skis it here. Um, if every single time you try to think about macroeconomically, you're like, but I don't know what each individual is doing. I don't have a model for their mm -hmm. behavior. You would just like descend into a slough of despond, right? And just like be like, well, I'm just in a sort of absolute paralysis of knowledgelessness and I can't say anything about anything. And like, well, that's no good. That's not useful. Well said. Um, yeah, you have to simplify, but then you also have to calibrate, right? You have to sort of like simplify, be like, well, let me solve this easier problem. Let me try to analyze this system that's much simpler than the real thing. And then go back and look at the predictions I made and see like, do they kind of match up with um, what's actually going on? Or if not, then you're like, okay, I simplified too much. I assumed a spherical cow, as they like to say in the physics literature do you guys use that phrase in economics no no i haven't say oh it's this famous story where they're like you know they're sort of they, they they ask so someone in the agriculture department sort of like asks a physicist to sort of uh make a model for um some kind of you know beef production this many inputs this many outputs and like the first line is assume a spherical cow <laughs> <laughs> but that might be okay actually the thing, the thing is there's certain kinds of questions about cows you might ask in which as funny as that is it's a perfectly reasonable way to start by yeah. the way i'm gonna i'm gonna break in and say you know you sort of apologized a bit for not sticking to the book and that we're just kind of going off in random directions but kind of riffing and going off in random directions i'm gonna be honest with you is actually how i write books so I would say, if you like this stuff, even though we're not really covering the material in the book, that's this is. Would you? I mean, you've read the book, David. Would you agree? This is basically the experience that I'm trying to reproduce on the page when I write. I absolutely would, and I know we're going to talk. I, I'm curious. We're going to a little later your writing process and how you write. I've got a fun question or two around that. I'm always interested in people, people's art. And by the way. I'll interrupt you. I'm going to be teaching this this fall, and I've never done it before. So I'm super interested in talking about this because I have to like figure out. I can only figure out what I think about something by talking about it and writing about it. So I actually need over this month yeah. because I'm teaching in September to be like better articulating what I think about how to write about quantitative topics. Since I'm allegedly explaining to 18 year olds how to do it. How do we know what we think until we've actually written it down to understand through our hands and our minds and our keyboards? What we actually do think, I, I totally can relate to that. We do need to talk some about investing, and we are going to go back to the book once oh, again. Oh, yeah. Because a prominent story you tell among many in How Not to Be Wrong is that of the Baltimore stockbroker. Would you tell that again here? Sure. I mean, and this is a story I actually really tried hard to like figure out its origin, and I've never sort of fully succeeded. But It's, it's a sort story. of iconic. Yeah. I mean, you may, I mean, actually, you may know more than me about even earlier precursors than I was able to find. Um, and I don't even know, like, why I think of it as a story about Baltimore. That was lodged in my mind somewhere, and that's where I always thought of it, and I was unable to find a reference for that. But the story is this, that, um, 
you receive a mysterious stock tip in the mail from somebody in Baltimore. You don't know this person. You don't know why they sent it to you. They're like, hey, this so-and-so stock, watch it. It's going to go up a lot over the next week. And you sort of think, okay, so a crazy person wrote me uh, a letter. But then you do sort of take the time to look a week later and you see that that tip was correct. Um, The next week, you get another letter, another tip. Now you're kind of intrigued. And so you wait and you look. Once again, the Baltimore stockbroker nails the motion of the stock. And then an amazing thing happens, which is that every week for 10 weeks, you get an anonymous tip in the mail. And every week, the tip is correct. And then, of course, this ends with the person saying, like, I'm, if you're interested, I'll manage your money. Like, I'll, you know, for a, for a modest percentage, you know, I'll be your guy. And, of course, at this point, you're totally sold. Um, well, what's the punchline of the story? The punchline of the story is that um, the Baltimore stockbroker, that first week, he didn't just write you a letter. He wrote 1,000 people a letter. And more precisely, he wrote 1,024 people a letter, uh-huh. so the real yep. heads out in the audience now know how this is going to go just from what number <laughs> I chose. Um, Two well, to let's the say ten. A let's say a thousand, and and of those thousand letters, actually five hundred of them were like the one you got, and five hundred of of them were about the same stock, but they made the exact opposite prediction. And those people didn't get a second letter; they were just people who got a weird letter from Baltimore. Uh, that proposed the stock tip that didn't pan out and they never heard from the person again. Um, And and now you can sort of see how this is going to go, right? Like each week, half as many people get a letter because half as many people have gotten a string of correct predictions. And in the end, it's just you, the luckiest, or by some measure, the unluckiest (laughs) person out of the original 1,000. And you are a fish, right? You are on the line now. And so, I mean, and the reason I tell that story is because you know, to illustrate this basic statistical principle, which is that when we we think of statistical inference as this process we do where we like make observations and then we say, what can we conclude based on what we observe? And the sad and difficult fact about statistics is that that is not enough. You kind of have to have some model for what you what you might have observed but did not. And without that, you can't really do inference. So when you're getting those letters, you kind of have to know in order to know what to take from them, who else is getting letters and what do they say? Like, what letters did you not get? And then, of course, you may say, but in real life, you can't know that. Yep. Well, life's tough. Well, you often don't. And we're often subject to an observational environment where we truly don't have what we need to make principled inferences or even principled guesses. And there are all kinds of biases in our psychology that cause us to, uh, with recency, uh, favor certain things or um, look for a certain color. And all of a sudden, because we decided it was red, we see red everywhere uh, just because we were just looking for that thing. Uh, John Allen Paulos, who is a professor of math, I don't know if you've met him, but he I certainly have. distinguished himself a generation ago. He created right? the whole market category that I live Writing in. books like a mathematician reads the newspaper. Yeah. And I know this is the same tradition that you are what writing a title. thin One today. of the great titles. And so you're a fan. I'm a fan. Yeah. And, and I really appreciate your work and his work. And I can only imagine what it must be like, Jordan, for you to read the newspaper, the news, and some of the headlines, of course, um, are there to get clicks. But often we're reading about studies 
at least, and I have to put my cards on the table here, I majored in English literature, but at least from my standpoint, um, they're not necessarily quoting the study or it's not clear what the premises of the studies are. And then even the numbers that they're pulling from the study seem very selective and questionable. Do you read the news? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I guess I sort of, I, I read it filtered through Twitter like everybody else. Yeah. Um, no, no, actually, that's not true. I, I'm going to stand up for myself. I get a paper New York Times every day and a paper Wisconsin State Journal on Sundays. So like, yes, I look at Twitter like everybody else, but I do actually have a soft spot for this mode of information transmission. I think it's kind of important actually to have stuff put in front of your face that is not either what you chose to look at or what an algorithm based on what you did choose decided you should look at. Like the physical paper newspaper, I'm just going to stick up for it. It just has like lots of random stuff in it that you otherwise would not see. And I take some value in that. Wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. And I just imagine you read it and see it differently. And it's getting me now into a little bit more of your process of writing, which I wanted to talk some about, Jordan. Um, you've written a novel, a number of essays. I'm curious about your approach to writing. We talked movies earlier. Let's go back to another old favorite. There's a great moment in the movie Terminator where for the first time we see things from Arnold Schwarzenegger's character's point of view, the Terminator robot point of view. I'm pretty sure it comes before that iconic line, I'll be back. Anyway, briefly, we get the audience gets in Arnold's head looking outward. It turns out the whole interface is like numbers. I haven't seen the movie in a while. They're probably all ones and zeros, but it's just like numbers everywhere dominating his interface. So I'm curious, Jordan Ellenberg, when, when you pick up a pen to write or maybe just ready your keyboard to type, how you might be writing differently from Wordsworth, say, or Flannery O'Connor. I mean, are you typing letters, words, or, or is it all just numbers? I'm a little scared now that we've been talking for 45 minutes and still your mental model of me is as the Terminator. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just, like, I'm just trying, that, like, we're trying to get you, in you your head. You came on the screen here and then there was like a little, in my <laughs> eyes, there was like a little red box over your head and it was like mathematical, <laughs> illiterate, identified. <laughs> <laughs> probability of comprehension 3% like no come on like that's not I how think our the amount look. I think the amount of times that I'm laughing show how much fun I'm having I mean John Malkovich has made an entire industry about being in his head but I'm actually more interested in yours Okay but to answer your question seriously as I said I was interested in math more as a little kid but I was also interested in writing I took like a ton of creative writing classes when I was in college and then I even like after college before I went and got my doctorate in math like I went and did a creative writing degree wrote a novel which I later published so you you sort of you sort of alluded to before um and I would say what I learned doing that has been phenomenally valuable to me as a popular science writer and as a writer about math like I feel like um Look, I'm not going to, I'm no Flannery O'Connor, but definitely what I learned from reading Flannery O'Connor about how to put together sentences and how to put together a story, I mean, that is what we're doing when we're writing popular science. We're telling stories. And just like Flannery O'Connor, we're telling stories about people, right? Because like every single thing in mathematics was created by human beings to serve human purposes. And I find those stories like, Super interesting, but they're not, we are not right. Who's trained to tell stories about people and their desires and their motivations and the crazy stuff they went through. We don't learn that in grad school of math, right? Like it's like when you learn to write fiction that you like learn how to tell those stories. And so I use those skills all the time. And I feel like what I'm doing as a writer is much, much more like what I was doing when I was trying to be a novelist 
than it is like what I'm trying to do when I'm work, working on math research, which is like a very different thing. Is it hard for someone so ingenious mathematically to to have written how not to be wrong? I mean, why not have a journalist cranking out dummies books, somebody who does that for a living, talk about the power of mathematical thinking. Did you ever feel like, why am I writing this for these people? I, I, no, because, I, you know, no, I mean, I'm, even, I'm, I'm not even sure I can, like, identify with why you would ask that question. And the, look, I talk a lot about what I, I have a like the phrase I like to use is outward facing science. I feel like science in general is very inward facing. We talk to each other, but I can tell you that there is a hunger among working scientists to kind of be able to tell our own stories. Um, and I think actually you really need both. So you absolutely need journalists who are not embedded in our profession, whether that's math or computer science, AI or physics or engineering or biology or anything else. Um, you need journalists who can sort of like look at things objectively and talk about things as an outsider. Um, but you also need that view from the inside and to keep the baseball thing going. Um, you need sports writers, but you also need Jim Booten, right? Love it. Who writes ball four, both of yeah. those, you got to have both of those perspectives. I'm not a journalist, right? I'm not writing objectively. I'm just like, I get excited about stuff and I like want to tell you how I see it. Um, and you've done that so evidently this week. And I really appreciate about, that about you. And I really didn't mean in any way, I love the, the way you phrased it. I don't even know where that question would be coming from, <laughs> you said. And I think it's because before I got to know you during this hour, I was just kind of imagining what it must be like. And without overplaying the Terminator hand, I was just thinking, you know, why would Jordan spend, as somebody who is comfortable in the highest levels of math and and abstraction and the um the pioneering spirit of where we are right now asking questions we couldn't have articulated before why would you write something to popularize it but you've already made it so evident in this hour you love getting people turned on to this stuff but you know what almost all of us who are research mathematicians the way the profession is set up in this country almost all of us are professors we're teachers so you got to remember, I'm in front of 18, 19, 20-year-olds yep. all the time talking about this stuff and trying to convey my excitement about this stuff. And yeah, there's there's some folks in my profession who are not that into that, but a lot of us really like it, Yeah, right? It's like- there's those are all the professors kind of, we love. There's, there's something kind of soul-enriching about being around young people all the time who are like sponges for knowledge and are just excited about stuff. And so I think I, I see the books as actually very, very close to my teaching and spirit. Like that's, I mean, it's sort of continuous, but I get to do it for many more people at a time, right? With a book than I can in a classroom. Absolutely. And I invite you on an investing podcast and here we are talking about, it. you know, I, I have not read Shape. That is your 2021 book. Can you give fans of your first book, AKA me, uh, who finally, in 2023, got around to reading the book you'd written nine years ago. Can you give fans of your first book who haven't yet read your second, maybe a little more context and enticement as to why to pick up your 2021 release? I'm going to give the full title here, Shape, The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. But I wanted to make sure all my bases were covered so nobody complained or something was in the book that wasn't advertised on the cover. Well, you know what? Uh, rather than try to give a whole pricey for the book, let me let me talk about the investment angle in that book since that's exactly for your audience. Because one thing I sort of talk about is the kind of fascinating realm of mysticism around a number, a number called the golden ratio 
Um, and it's sort of funny that sort of some like particular number between one and two would have like a whole mystic culture around it. And I write about, um, you know, the the Da Vinci Code and I write about um, like a wonder, a, a sort of movie called Pi that I kind of love and have a complicated feelings about. Mm-hmm. Um, but another thing I write about is there's a whole world of investing. And I'm watching your eyes very carefully as I say this, because I don't know your <laughs> stance on this. But there are people who believe in this theory of like longer and longer waves whose ratios are in this kind of so-called golden ratio to each other. I think it might be the Elliott wave theory. Yes. Maybe. So I write about, and I learned a lot about Elliott himself, which is a crazy story. So I write, I, I was like, who the hell is this guy? So I like wrote a lot about him, like how he got into this theory and like the fact that you can still get golden ratio lines on your Bloomberg terminal if you want to. But actually you tell me how many people in 2023 are still into this? Uh, I don't think that many, and since you're saying you're watching my eyes, I'm going to do my eyes for you. This doesn't work on the audio, but certainly you and I are seeing each other in video, and <laughs> so you saw me cross my eyes because I do not really follow the LA Wave I wish theory. you I could all have seen those eyes. Crazy. <laughs> I think it's kind of crazy stuff, but and but in the end, it's it's too abstractly divorced from what really is happening, which is that businesses are being created to solve problems and or create new possibilities and then we we buy them and over the course of time they you know the overall market rises and falls and i realize maybe it's all dancing to the tune of unseen violins somewhere but i really i don't really care very much about that i don't but not only that but i would say most of all jordan um, strategies like that are often premising on jumping in and out of the market and at least for me what i've lived not just preached now in my late 50s, it's going to work, I hope, for the rest of my life is just buy and keep holding and keep adding and keep holding. And don't try to guess where the market's headed or think that large language models will predict the weather <laughs> three weeks from now or the markets themselves. Anyway, so that is my that's my. Well, and that's certainly like what I do as an individual with my own savings. And that seems to me the principal thing to do. Um, I want to say I'm, I'm always open minded, though, and, and that's really how not to be wrong. And that's one of the cardinal, maybe the cardinal lesson of your book. It's, it's humility. The way not to be wrong is not to be arrogant or think that you're right or you found this crazy thing that nobody else understands. It's actually just to, uh, to, to, to sit there and wonder and, and try to answer and show intellectual curiosity and ultimately uh, listen and learn and test and uh, all the things that led to much better baseball. Absolutely. And I think, you know, in the end, the title is like a little bit cheeky, right? Because in the end, where do I wind up? You know, the last chapter is called How to Be Right, as you can imagine. And and there, you know, I sort of put my cards down and I'm like, you know, come on, you got to have this kind of humility. There isn't a recipe for being right every time. Holding in mind always the idea that you could be wrong is sort of part of like strong thinking. And by the way, there are totally people who like, give my book a bad review on Amazon because they're like, well, it said it was called how not to be wrong. And I felt like then there was this philosophy at the end and I was expecting like an instruction manual. I was expecting to come away from this book always being right. I'm like, come on, for $28? Really? That's what you expected? <laughs> well said, but then you followed up with Shape where you're talking about everything else. Actually, it almost reads like a Douglas Adams title. I assume you're a Douglas Adams fan at some point. Oh, you know, you're right. It's funny. I hadn't thought about Life the Universe and I must have been subconscious. Like, you're the first person to bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> Life, the Universe, and Everything. That's the book. That's the Douglas Adams book. I must have been subconsciously. You you might have been, and or that might still be ahead. 
I'm not. I after those two titles, I don't know what you po could possibly do next. Although there are things, there are other universes perhaps besides this one. So you what could, do you think I should write a book about? That's a great question. I, I I I would need to read Shape, which I have not yet, but I certainly am here promoting to Rule Breaker fans and fellow fools everywhere and listeners to start with Jordan's first book. And if you haven't read that, you're going to love it. And I don't care whether you think you like math or not. We all can think better, which is ultimately, and more humbly, which is ultimately the big lesson of a mathy supposed book. But then Shape, I don't know well enough yet, although I, I have read some about the golden ratio and and There's a lot of random that... walks in it, including down Wall Street. That's only one <laughs> of the random walks. I, I, I do a lot of that. Well, we're getting near the end, Jordan. This has been so much fun. Uh, we're going to play buy, sell, or hold in just a minute or two. But before going there... There's a sad, though, prevalent tendency in our culture, I think, to paint the math talented into a corner. I hope I haven't done that during this interview. Maybe I did subconsciously. But paint the math talented into a corner and assume, on the one hand, they can run rings around us in so many contexts. But on the other, they're nerds who clearly don't have any interests outside higher math. Jordan, thoughts about this? And by the way, how do you spend time outside your professional work? Well, so, okay, I got to give kind of a corny answer to this question, which is that I am a dad of two adolescent kids. And so like, I, I do feel like almost all of my time is like hanging out with them and doing the stuff they like to do. What I a mean, great dad. Know, math is, a. I mean, obviously I'm a, as you just said before, I'm a baseball fan. In particular, I'm a Baltimore Orioles fan, which for many years has not been a way to have fun. Best record in the American League as we speak. But this year is extremely fun. My kids like baseball too, so we go to games a lot. I mean, you know, when you're, I feel like I, the, the thing about math as a profession is, it's, I, I always wonder, you know, you read these people arguing, like, do people work too much? Are they working too many hours? People who do math, we do math because we really like math. So I, I think about math like all the time. Like, I think about math when I'm like, you know, lying in bed, like, can't sleep or whatever is that work should i count that as my work hours i don't know that's just what i like to think about like you know okay so like my i i went with my son to see six do you know that musical six i i think i do but just give like the two sentencer on it only just to say no spoilers I do stuff but... with my kids that's fun hang out with my kids this musical was not my cup of tea okay so i thought about math i listened to the songs thought about <laughs> math it was good you know what i mean so was i at work or was i doing something with my kids it's an interesting work life good example question do you paint? No, I don't. I think play an I, instrument. No, it's funny. I think whatever artistic ambitions I have are solely directed to words on the page. I yeah. like to try to make a snappy tweet too. So any kind of words on any kind of page. But um, I was never, you know, I think there's a lot of mathematicians actually who are like super into like classical music and like that's just sure. the world. I've never. I, I just. I don't. I don't know how to listen to that kind of music. I haven't quite learned to understand it. I like that you like baseball, and all I really care about is that you're a fantastic writer. And I think it's wonderful to hear that you're teaching writing for the first time at U Wisconsin this fall. I think that's so cool. It's it's, it's going to be fun. I'm a little scared about it because it's a lot easier to teach the things that you have been teaching for years and know how to do. But um, we'll see how it goes. All right, let's play buy, sell, or hold. These are not stocks. These are things that if they were stocks. Jordan Ellenberg, would you be buying, selling, or holding? And maybe a thought or two as to why. You ready? Yes, I think. All right. First up, chess. Yep, 
the board game, the classic game, the staying power of chess going forward, if it were a stock, are you buying, selling, or holding? Okay, I personally hate chess. I do too. I'm going to say hold. <laughs> I'm going to say hold because I think people thought there was going to be a massive disruption once computers got it better at it than people. I don't think people are like that. I think people still like playing chess anyway. It's just kind of like chugging along as it goes. A lot of young people, you guys should read Jennifer Shahad's book about like what's going on in chess, which is like super good. Um, so even though for me, every time I play chess, I'm like, if I'm going to be thinking in this way and this hard, I could be doing math right now. Instead of this, why am I doing this instead? This is stupid. Okay, but um, that's just me not appreciating it. So hold. Before we get to the next one, I love games. I obviously am talking to a fellow sports fan. And by the way, we're both kind of DC area guys. I, knew I didn't know that. Wait, are you a Royals too? I'm not actually because uh, before the Minnesota Twins were the Minnesota Twins, they were the Washington Senators. And our family had some affiliation there. And I was simply raised as a Twins fan, of all things. So I'm a lifetime. I was a bat boy back in the day. Otherwise known as the 2023 ALCS, possibly. (laughs) Yeah. The Twins have this magical ability to be like five games ahead. And they would be in last in the AL East. It's really a neat trick if others could figure out that technology. Uh, But sticking with games just for a sec, do you play games? Do you enjoy board games, card games? Are you a gamer? I would not say I'm a gamer. I don't play a lot. It's one of those things I have to sort of remind myself exists. But there's certain games where every time I play them, I'm like, this is cool. I should do this more. I would say that about, um, oh, my God, I'm losing my mind. What is it called? Like Sinking Island or something like this? It's in my house. I should be able to like see it from where I'm sitting. Um, I, I know which game you mean. It, it, it is, it's like a 40-year classic that, that's been put out in and, a new um, edition. And Wingspan is another one. Like sure. I mean, you, you admire the design, right? You're like, wow, this is like a really elegantly put-together thing. I should do it more. And then I never actually do. <laughs> Wingspan is a fine game. All right, next one on the list. Buy, sell, or hold self-driving cars. Will this actually happen in the next 20 years? Buy, sell, or hold? And of course, I mean at scale. I realize it's already been out there, Waymo, for some time driving. You always hear they're, yeah, they're, they've logged millions of miles in Silicon Valley, but I'm talking about for the rest of us. So depending on what you mean, I'm going to say buy because I like literally did buy a new car, which has a lot of self-driving features, uh, a Ford Mustang Mach-E, if you need to know. Very cool. Wheels, um, which is, which is supplements my existing car which is a 2001 subaru forester so i have leaped uh many many generations of automotive technology the new car does not have a tape deck like my old car so i'm wrestling with that um so i'm gonna say bye for the following but maybe not in the way that you think because um i think what you see is that people are developing lots of like really great features which are not full autonomy right it's not the car just kind of goes from your house to come pick you up entirely by itself. But which, like we were saying about AI generally, um, really do a lot to help the human operator. So a sort of super hype merchant might say, well, your car is not self-driving at all because you're still sitting there with your hands on the wheel. And I would say, no, the car is self-driving a lot. It's like keeping me from sideswiping someone. Not that I do that a lot, but like... um, so I would say that kind of like assistive technology is clearly the coming thing. And is cl- to me, it seems like obviously it's going to be in new cars that people buy um, and it's just going to get better and keep helping. 
people. So Sounds- I'm a buy. I'm a buy. If, if, if that's what we mean, which is different from Waymo, I know. Sure, that's what we mean. That was good. Let's go to the next one. Buy, sell, or hold university lecture halls, the traditional picture that we all have in our minds, still being peopled 20 years from today. Hold. Somewhat controversial stance. But I'm going to say hold. I understand all the reasons people say this is an outmoded method of knowledge transmission that cannot possibly survive in the internet world. But I have also been teaching in college long enough to know that that has been being said for one reason or another since the day I walked out of grad school with my PhD. And somehow it has not happened yet. So it might. But I feel like everything that was supposed to replace university <laughs> lecturing has failed to replace university lecturing, has in many ways supplemented it. I think we might have killed the textbook, by the way. That might go. But I would say this. This, again, maybe is going to sound corny. But I think there is something kind of irreplaceable about this fact of a bunch of people coming together in the same place at the same time and joining their attention on one thing that creates a kind of attention that is kind of hard to get when you're watching something at home on your own time, when you choose to do it, maybe you stop it because you feel like a snack and like come back to it later. Um, it is not the same. I think people who make movies would say the same thing about the movie theater, that they don't feel like people are not doing the same thing when they're watching their the movie on their phone while also texting as they do when they're with a group of people in the theater. I would also say everything we talk about is secretly about baseball. Like, yeah, you can watch baseball on your TV at home, but you would agree, right, that being at the stadium is actually a different thing. It is not the same thing. If you say, oh, yeah, I saw that game, you don't mean you saw it on TV. Mm. You mean you were there with tens of thousands of other people supporting your team, um, exerting a kind of communal attention that you can only get in that kind of environment. I guess that seems like kind of a grand way to describe what happens in a 500-person calculus lecture hall at 8 in the morning when people are sort of in their pajamas, I'll admit. But I do think there's something of that there, so I'm a hold. Well, it, it is. I'm glad you confronted it. I mean, it's, it's a fun question to ask. Commercial real estate has some dogs in this fight. There are lots of aspects of our society that are kind of paused and waiting and trying to figure out what the future feels like. And... Um, Thank you for that. Two more for you. Uh, We've done some sports. Let's do it one more time. Let's jump sports, though. If it were a stock over the next 25 years, buy, sell, or hold NFL football. I'm going to say sell, partly because I haven't said sell for anything yet, and I feel like I'm coming (laughs) off as something of a Pollyanna who just likes everything. Um, I'm not sure that's right because football is really popular and I watch it too. I like it. I get the joy of it. Um, But people thought there would always be boxing. Hmm. And yes, there still is boxing. But if you look back at what place boxing held in like the American soul in the 1950s or even when I was a kid in the 80s, it's a shell of what it was, right? How much people care is a shell of what it was. And partly it's because people really did sort of start to understand better what it was doing to people. And they just were like, there's other stuff we could be watching. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, bullfighting is kind of the same, right? Not with people, but I mean, it's something that was like a huge part of Spanish culture. And now it's like much, much less because people have just started to be like, okay, do we need, couldn't we watch soccer instead? <laughs> like, we, you know what I mean? Like, do we need to be doing this? So I think, People are more and more uncomfortable with like what 
football does to the people who take part in it and provide our entertainment. I think um, it's, I don't think it's as popular with like parents and for their kids to play it as it once was. I, if you really have to put like, if I were, if we were really doing this, do I really think the NFL is going to evaporate the way boxing has? It's kind of hard to, uh, I don't, I guess I don't really think that's like better than 50, 50, but it like yeah. definitely could happen probably more likely than people. Do you go to UW it. football games? I do. I do sometimes go. The last one I went to, we got stomped so bad that our coach was literally fired. I think within a half an hour after the end of the game, <laughs> I kind of couldn't believe what I was seeing. But we have a we have a great team. I'll say a couple things. Um, one, if you're interested in the future of football and math, definitely read John Urschel's book. He's incredible. I don't know if you know this guy, but he's a guy who was a player for the Ravens who dropped out of the NFL to go get his PhD in math and. He writes, I mean, he writes unsparingly about how the people who play football are seen by the multi-billion dollar corporations that employ them. And if you read that, you'll be like, huh. And he loves football, by the way. Yeah. He's a pro. I mean, he loves football, but you really see a clear picture. One of the questions I write about in Shape is this like wonderful geometric conundrum of how many holes are there in a straw? I love it. Think about this at home. And I just saw actually our the Wisconsin football Twitter feed just like posted a video of our players all wrestling with this question. I thought it was so great. I'm like, it's so awesome. And it's so in the spirit of the student athlete, which I like to think that at Wisconsin, we hold to a lot better than certain other schools and certain other conferences I can name SEC. Um, <laughs> that like they that what they're putting on the Twitter feed of is a video of our players like thinking about math, which is great. Um, You're loving that. Definitely loving watch. Definitely that. watch that. It's cool. Thank you for the John Urschel re- reference. That that sounds very cool. All right, last one for you, Jordan. Uh, if it were a stock. Chat GPT going the way of the Facebook, i.e. being the dominant winner years from now versus the MySpace route. So Chat GPT, its survivability, its winning characteristics, buy, sell, or hold. So... Again, I'm going to choose to interpret it my way. I'm going to say buy if we mean large language models generally. If you mean the company, OpenAI, that makes ChatGPT, then I have no idea. Because I actually, my, my, I'm not an expert in this, but my sense of it is this is not that hard to do. Once you know that it works, everybody's going to build large language models. And I don't think there's going to be a massive first mover advantage held by OpenAI. I think there's, this, is, this is not tech that you can really hide how to do it. I could be wrong about this, but I mean, that's my impression that there's going to be like lots of other products that are as good and they're already being built. But I do think it works. It solves a certain problem that hasn't been solvable before. So I think it's here to stay. And so I think the general LLM concept is a buy. It's a perfect ending really for our time together, Jordan, when the author of the book, How Not to Be Wrong, closes with the final line, I could be wrong about this. You said that about ChatGPT, <laughs> and that really is a perfect demonstration of of your work. Not to be reductionistic or try to be too glib here at the end, but I really appreciate uh, the work that you do. Uh, what happens in your head, which I couldn't really begin to understand, but what happens on paper or on the web, I can. And you're a wonderful communicator and an advocate for understanding the world around us, and we need more of that. And I'm so glad that you joined us this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Thanks for having me on. This is extremely fun.
Well, for this Authors in August episode, I kind of feel like I lost the author part at different points. I mean, we did start with and return to Jordan's book at different points, but this was an off-the-rails hour together and what I hope proved enjoyable. Next week, just a reminder, novelist Amor Tolls and his recent mega hit, The Lincoln Highway. I'll probably keep my nose a bit more consistently in the book next week, but a word or two before you go. You know, one of my recurring themes on this podcast I'm put in mind of, once again, it's my sermonette that starts, do you have a blank friend? As in, do you have a white friend? Do you have a black friend? Do you have an Indian friend? Do you have a gay friend? Do you have a Republican friend? Do you have a Democrat friend? Do you have a fill-in-the-blank friend? In a lot of ways, this goes back to Mr. Rogers himself, a friend of the fool. We've played that interview back a few times with me, my brother Tom, and Fred Rogers. Mr. Rogers wasn't at all the only one, but prominently he did remind the world consistently to make friends, not to judge too much or too harshly. I know for me that my life is enriched by making more and more friends and more and different, that's the key, different friends, people who live differently from me, believe different things, do things I would never do, sometimes really amazing things like winning gold medals in international math Olympiads. We are enriched by every new and different kind of friend we make. And so I feel like today here at the end of this week's podcast, you and I can now say, in answer to the question, do you have a math friend? Yes. Yes, we do. Thanks for listening. Full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.